I think it's probably safe to say that now, in 2021, we know that being drunk is not an excuse to be able to do whatever you want without having to face any consequences, right? I mean, we, we pretty much know that. In the late 1800s, things were not so black and white. Um, the lines were kind of blurry, and we were also still kind of defining what is insanity and where those boundaries were. And so this story that I'm going to tell you today is going to take a close look at the law and what role alcohol can play in crimes and um, that whole element of pleading insanity. So this is the story of Mr. and Mrs. Anderson of Louisville, Kentucky. The beginning of this story will sound familiar to you. It starts the way some of the other stories I've told have started. So Robert and Margaret Anderson were married, but perhaps not happily anymore. Margaret was tired of her husband coming home drunk all the time and wasting his paychecks on liquor. He had a good job as an engineer with a masonry company, but with the amount of money he spent on booze, there wasn't much left over for food and other basic necessities for the family. And his drinking habit was only getting worse. Um, So a few weeks before the rest of our story takes place, Robert threw a rope around Margaret's neck and was getting ready to hang her right in their own home, except some neighbors heard the commotion and rushed over and were able to stop him. He also didn't have a good relationship with his five children. The two oldest kids had already left home, but The three younger still lived at home, and he was awful to them, to the point where they would get really anxious as soon as he got home at night with, you know, that alcohol smell on his breath. So, yeah, sort of setting up for the perfect storm here. Um, The Andersons lived at the corner of 12th and Zane Street in Louisville, which are still the street names today, so we can actually have a real idea of where they lived. Um, It's actually a block away from what's currently a masonry supply store, which I wonder if that has roots as being the company he worked for in the 1800s. But anyway, let's get to the night of April 18th, 1878. Mr. Anderson gets home from work. Um, I looked it up. It was a Thursday, not a weekend, but he came home drunk and uh, he was in a really bad mood. And his wife, Margaret, had been washing other people's clothes all day to make a little extra money. So she was in no mood to be messed with either. Um, But he demanded that Margaret give him all the money that she had made that day working, which no doubt he was planning to go out and spend on more liquor. So at that point, she was like, you know what? I'm done. I'm leaving you. Enough is enough. And that's when Robert reached for a knife and attacked her. She fell to the floor, blood gushing from her neck and chest. Somehow, though, she was able to get outside, where a stranger found her and tried to stop the bleeding the best he could until doctors got there. Finally, a doctor arrived, accompanied by the police, and they went inside and found Mr. Anderson smoking a pipe. And Officer Brown asked Mr. Anderson, why did you do it? To which he responded, she provoked me. 
Later, Officer Brown would testify that Mr. Anderson did seem nervous while he was being questioned, but that could have been due to the fact that there was an angry crowd gathering in front of his house and he was afraid he might be lynched. Officer Brown searched Mr. Anderson and found a pen knife, which is small like a pocket knife that could either be folding or fixed straight. Um, So he found this little knife. It wasn't really bloody, though. And so what they think happened, um, something that was pretty common, it was the quickest thing you could do back then if you stabbed somebody, was to stuff the blade of your knife into the ground so that the blood was kind of smeared off by the dirt and the mud. Um, So they think he did that. But there was still the matter of a stabbed wife, blood spatter on the walls, and um, maybe a witness, which we'll talk about in a second. Also, he wasn't explicitly admitting to the crime while he was being questioned, but he also didn't deny it. So they did go ahead and arrest him for assault. But nine days later, Mrs. Anderson succumbed to her injuries, and Mr. Anderson's charge was upgraded to murder. His trial didn't start until January 15, 1879. And here's how it went down. His lawyers were adamant that he was insane. And the prosecution was like, obviously, this is all a ploy to get an easier sentence. And so the press was all over this because it was so dramatic and it made for great headlines. They had tons of witnesses testify that the Anderson household was a violent, unhappy one. That was no secret. In fact, twice in the last month leading up to the stabbing, police had to intervene to break up fights between the couple. And both times they were called, Robert had threatened to kill Margaret with a butcher knife. The really sad thing about this is that the second time the police were called to the house, they wanted to arrest Robert, but Margaret actually pleaded with them not to. Now, let's talk about the children a little bit. So, their daughter Rebecca testified that she had been home the night before the attack and she saw her father holding that knife so it was out and the night of the attack their 11 year old son saw the walls covered in his mom's blood but somehow he never saw the knife so he was like in the room at some point um but what they think happened is that when he saw what was happening he quickly you know ran away and hid because he was scared Uh, Both children testified that their father was violent and abusive when under the influence, which was often. There were two neighbors, Mr. Ross and Mrs. Fletcher, who said they saw Mrs. Anderson stagger out of the home after the attack. And one of them testified that Mrs. Anderson came out and told them that it was her husband who'd stabbed her. So pretty cut and dry at this point. Uh, Two days after the trial started, the defense was called to present their case. Now, here was their approach. Uh, The obvious task at hand was to prove that this guy was insane. Uh, So they had to do that. And then the other thing they needed to do was point out that it was very possible that the doctor's malpractice was ultimately what led to Margaret's death. Because, see, When she was first being attended to, they were all pretty sure she was going to make it, that she was going to live. Her injuries seemed to be non-life-threatening, but we're talking 1800s, and so it's very possible that she got an infection and there was nothing they could do about it, but 
what the attorneys really needed to do was try to transfer some of the blame to the doctors while simultaneously saying, and our, our client here is also insane. Anderson's lead defense attorney spoke for two and a half hours, and apparently the speech was pretty convincing. Uh, This was Colonel Reginald H. Thompson, who was a very well-known and well-respected attorney in the Commonwealth. Um, Aside from being on the wrong side of the Civil War, he he, sounds like he did some pretty good things for the city of Louisville. Um, I'll give you a quote here. Quote, a grandmaster of Kentucky Masons and Confederate veteran, Judge Thompson founded the Kentucky Children's Home and Newsboys Home and Night School. He also took an active role with the Industrial School of Reform located across the street from the monument, as well as the Masonic Widows and Orphans Home. During his funeral procession in 1899, those of all social classes and children from orphanages across the city of Louisville lined the streets to pay their respects. At the time of the dedication, it was reported that Judge Thompson's wife, Elizabeth, was chair of the Association Auxiliary Committee. So that was Colonel Thompson, who was now arguing that Mr. Anderson was insane and basically shouldn't be held accountable for the murder of his wife. Um, And the big thing in his argument was motive. You know, there wasn't really a clear obvious motive for killing her because at this point I don't think anyone knew that she had threatened to leave him. Uh, Beyond that, Mr. Anderson made no effort to keep her in the house, uh, clean up the crime scene, or flee the crime scene, which he argued are things that any sane person would have done. You know, the fact that he just sat there afterwards, uh, what does that say about him? Colonel Thompson also argued that his insanity was triggered by alcohol. Quote, This mental disease always existed in the habitual inebriate, and to them it acted upon and was in turn reacted upon by the mind until every element of manhood was destroyed and the unhappy victim of inebriety was left a soulless, depraved, perverted animal, the prey of his own passions. So, if you're buying this argument, basically it's okay for drunk dudes to do whatever they want because it's the alcohol pulling the levers, not them. They're victims too. B.S. Now, the Commonwealth's Attorney General Basil Duke, amazing name, said, yeah, absolutely not. That's ridiculous. Uh, He thought, you know, if we go by this logic, pretty much anyone can be excused for any crime if they've been drinking. Um, Apparently, the attorney general wondered aloud why these, quote, so-called lunatics never seem to attack anyone bigger and stronger than themselves. Good question. He was a Confederate general, too, this uh, Basil Duke. So I'm not trying to praise this guy too much, but I will say he was very good looking. There's no denying it. Look this guy up. Um, he also served as the chief lawyer and lobbyist for the l Railroad after the war, so you know he was making the big bucks. Uh, but yeah, he was on the wrong side of history, so moving on. The jury deliberated for just 45 minutes before announcing their guilty verdict, and uh, he was sentenced to death by hanging. Just a few days later, January 21st, Anderson's lawyers made a motion for a new trial. Colonel Thompson was just so sure that his client 
was innocent. Or maybe more likely he didn't like having that giant L on his record. Maybe. Uh, but the judge said, no, sir, we're, uh, we're pretty comfortable justice has prevailed here. Move along. That day, the presiding judge, W.L. Jackson, asked Mr. Anderson, quote, Have you anything to say why sentence should not be passed upon you in accordance with the jury's verdict? And here's where things kind of go further off the rails, because all of a sudden, Mr. Anderson offered up an entirely new version of what happened. So here's this new version that he gives the judge of what happened. Quote, I did not know how it happened until on my trial, but I know I did not use any knife. The blows must have been inflicted by my wife's falling on the prongs of the bed when I threw her down. If the doctors testified truly, they would have said the wounds were in the back of the neck. I declared to your honor before God that I did not cut her. Which is just BS because there were cuts on her chest too. I mean, it was obviously, it was pretty obviously knife wounds. Um, so Judge Jackson replied, quote, you had a fair trial. It makes no difference whether the killing was done with a knife or by some other weapon. The jury have passed upon the facts and I can do nothing. I command the sheriff of the county to take you out of jail on the 27th of June and hang you by the neck until you are dead. And may God have mercy on your soul. So before he was hauled off to jail, he then left the judge a written request. And this said, quote, If hard fate should so rule that I be denied a new trial, and the sentence of the law has to be passed upon me, may I ask your honor to order me executed within the jail yard? I have a great horror and revolt at the thought of being publicly executed. Hence, I pray your honor to grant me the above request, and in duty bound will ever pray. So now he's saying, look, if you gotta kill me, just please don't do it in front of everybody. So let's talk about this other guy now. There, there's this other character in the story. His name is Charles Webster. Uh, Charles Webster was a bad guy. Um, he and a guy named George Washington, a different George Washington, raped and assaulted an 11-year-old girl in October of 1878 in Louisville. Uh, George Washington had already been hanged for the crime, and Charles Webster was just passing the time in jail waiting for his execution date. For whatever reason, Governor Blackburn moved Webster's and Anderson's execution date to the same day, April 2nd, 1880. Uh, the really strange thing here is that apparently Robert Anderson had a lot of public support and there was pressure to commute his sentence to life without parole. He had a brother, Andrew Anderson, who came into town from Tennessee and he was circulating petitions to get his sentence changed. Um, Andrew Anderson also circulated rumors that Mrs. Anderson was really to blame for what happened to her. He told reporters that she was a drunk and that she loved to aggravate her husband. Andrew also told reporters that Robert had an abscess form in his brain when he was younger and that he, quote, had not acted normally since. So he was fully prepared to perpetuate this idea that his brother was insane and Mrs. Anderson deserved whatever she got. 
Eventually, though, Andrew realized that his efforts were coming up fruitless, so he hightailed it back to Knoxville, and that was that. Was that. Now, fast forward to March 28th, just days before Webster and Anderson were scheduled to die. A Courier-Journal reporter visited them in jail. Uh, Webster wasn't really up for talking, but Robert Anderson was. And this time, he had yet another story about what actually happened. So he told this CJ reporter that his sons had been playing with a gumbo shooter. A gumbo shooter, which is an amazingly whimsy term for slingshot that I've never heard before, but I'll, I'll never use slingshot again. A gumbo shooter. And he said that he, uh, he took the slingshot away from the kids and he forgot that this, this little contraption was in his hand when he went to beat his wife. He forgot he was holding it. So he meant to just beat her with his bare hands, you know? Totally innocent, right? Um, and he said that he didn't even realize that that's what had happened until two weeks later when he found the slingshot in his pocket while sitting in his jail cell. You guys, come on. So this is totally outlandish, and yet it didn't stop some of his supporters from calling for his sentence to be commuted. People were still standing up for this guy. The day before the executions, several women from a local church came to visit with the men. Webster was baptized and had joined the Green Street Baptist Church the morning before that. And um, you guys, I'm not religious, so I might be wrong. I might not know how it works, but I don't think it counts if you rape and assault someone and then decide you believe in God two days before you get hanged for it. Um, I'm just pretty sure that's not how it works. Anyway, April 2nd, 1880, execution day. The two men were led out to the gallows that were erected in the jail yard, and Anderson got his wish not to be publicly executed. Uh, The story goes that Webster was smiling the whole time. I guess he thought since he'd been baptized two days prior, it was going to be smooth sailing from there. But Robert Anderson was reportedly more pensive. He was a little more subdued. Uh, and they both maintained their innocence till the very end. They were pinioned and stood on the trap doors with the nooses snugly around their necks. Anderson asked that the traps be sprung when he gave a signal. He wanted to kind of be in control of his own execution. And the sheriff said, hey, why not? It's your execution day. So a minute later, Anderson gave the signal and the trap doors opened. And here's what's kind of interesting about this. Their execution made history in the state of Kentucky. I guess in some part, thanks to Anderson's letter to Judge Jackson, theirs was the first private execution in the state of Kentucky. And you know, although death by hanging is barbaric in its own right, doing it in public is just entirely worse. And so, you know, at least a glimmer of something good came from all this, I guess. Um, so yeah, no public execution that day. All the crowds got to see were the coffins going in and the coffins coming out. And that, my friends, is the story of Robert and Margaret Anderson. Uh, I think the moral of the story here is that 
being drunk is not an excuse to be a bad human being. So uh, that's all I've got. Be good to each other. And until next time.